In this next scene, we have Jesus. He is um, going through the trial with the Sanhedrin. He's been arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples have deserted him. Peter's betrayed him. And um, the Sanhedrin, their main goal was to pass him off to Pilate in order for him to be executed in the most brutal way on a cross. They weren't satisfied with stoning him. They didn't have the legal uh, rights to crucify him. And so Jesus appears before Pilate, and we have these two kings, if you will, like authorities in different kingdoms, the Roman Empire and um, God's kingdom, and, and, and they start clashing. And we have this dialogue between um, a hero and a villain, if you will, or, or two people with different worldviews, with different perspe- perspectives of how the world should be, how it functions, and its values. And I think this is just an amazing look at, um, our, at our society, as, at what we value, um, at how we think about rank and power and prestige, and its great contrast with God's kingdom. And so this intimate conversation between Pilate and Jesus, I think, can represent uh, modern conversations of how Jesus would talk to the powers of this world and how there is such different vision and values associated in that conversation. And so a lot happens, and it's actually, some of the scenes are really grotesque, but we're going to focus in on this dialogue and kind of skim through the rest of the passage because there's just so many verses. So let me give you a little backdrop about Pilate. He's born in uh, rural Spain, And just like modern day, we have people kind of moving from small towns into urban places to chase after dreams, to have a place in the world. And that's what Pilate does. He joins the Roman uh, legion when he's um, a teenager, and he wins some really prestigious battles. He starts rising the ranks in the army. And then he is able to cross over from an army man, from a from someone who who fights battles into the political arena, primarily by uh, marrying Claudia, who is the daughter of the Roman Empire uh, emperor at the time, Augustus, and she was kind of from a um, she was from this mom uh, who's married to Augustus and. And Augustus' wife is someone that no one liked in the Roman Empire. She actually got outed from the courts because she was really crude and crass. And he, he had this like, famous quote where whenever someone mentioned her, uh, his wife by name, he said, man, I wish I had never got married and was childless. Like, I'd rather have had that life. And so Pilate, uh, most like people who are noble, wouldn't marry into that side of the family. But we see that he's chasing after power and prestige, and he's kind of willing to do anything. So he marries uh, Claudia, and then he becomes the governor of Judea right around, right at this moment when, at the beginning of his time in Judea, you have this trial go on with Jesus and him facing off. And Judea is kind of the lowest of the low in terms of provinces in the Roman Empire. It's like, where does no one want to go? Let's send Pilate there, because he was, again, like a low-class politician. And he's uh, scripted by many historians as one of the worst governors that 
the Roman Empire has seen, and he's become like someone who had a loose grip on authority because Rome was contemplating removing him. He made a lot of poor political decisions, one of which he wanted to create an aqueduct for, for Judea and Jerusalem. And so instead of raising money or asking Rome, he raided the Jewish temple. Not a good political move, right? And uh, he, he takes their money, and there's just this great protest, you know, outrage. People are gathering in the city. And in order to squash that, he sends out his soldiers in regular clothes. They carry daggers with them, and they mingle in the crowd, pretending to protest, and then they just start killing people. And this is how he ruled. It was out of fear. It was in tyranny. And people, people despised him. So as we walk into the scene, we think about who Pilate is um, and the kind of kingdom that he's building, the kind of rulership that he has. So the Jewish leaders took Jesus from the Sanhedrin into uh, Pilate's palace. They didn't want to go inside because of the Passover that was coming up. So Pilate comes out to them, and he says, what charges are you bringing this man? And then they kind of retorted, hey, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. And Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. And then they said, we can't execute anyone. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus, even though he looks like a victim, even though he's in chains, even though he's been beaten, we see that he's sovereign over the situation, that he was predicting this kind of death. He was choosing it. In the next slide, uh, Pilate goes back into the palace and he summons Jesus. And here we start again seeing these two rulers and these two kingdoms and how their vision and values start to clash. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asks, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to present, prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And so we see this clashing of philosophies. We see Jesus um, not admitting the king, the idea of king that Pilate was holding, and yet talking about his kingdom. Then we have uh, Pilate going outside, speaking to the Jews again. It was the Passover, and during that time, the Romans would release one of the prisoners to the Jews. And he asked, do you want me to release Jesus or Barabbas, who had started an uprising, and they keep asking for Barabbas. Then in John chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus, Jesus is flogged. Um, a, thorn, a crown of thorn is put on his head. They clothe him in purple. They mock him. They beat him. They slap him. And it's just this brutal scene. During that time, flogging was one of the worst tortures a person could endure. And um, there would be this whip with, with nine whips attached to it. And attached to those would be bones and metal. And, and it would, as they whipped someone, it would 
it would kind of claw into someone's back and rip uh, their back apart all the way up to the bone. And so 39 lashes is what Jesus got. Um, 40 would have killed him. And so he's brought back to Pilate disfigured. And he's hoping that he would incite um, mercy from the Jews and that the Jews would let Jesus go as, they, as he's embarrassed him and tormented him. But the Jews, uh, the chief priest asks that he be crucified. Pilate says, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I have no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted that Jesus died because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this in verse 8, he was even more afraid. And he was afraid because his wife, uh, Claudia, had come up to him the night before and, and warned him. She had this really tormenting nightmare where she comes out of it saying, hey, release this person, he's innocent. And that's why Pilate's fighting the whole time for Jesus. He went back to the palace. Where did you come from, he asked Jesus. Jesus gave him no answer. If you refuse to speak to me, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have the power either to release you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judge's seat in the place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. As you look at the next slide, I want to compare and contrast um, the kingdom of Jesus and him as king versus Pilate as a ruler, Pilate as king, and the empire in which he resided, the Roman Empire. And I want us to think about what kingdom we reside in? What, city, what a system do we adhere to? And what king do we serve? Because it's so easy to be in the Roman system when it comes to power. It's so easy to be a part of climbing the ranks and, and doing the things they do. I'd say our whole society is just a replica of how it used to be, of this Roman view of power and prestige. And so in the Roman Empire, we have power coming from man. And because of that, we have Pilate clinging on to that power. He's willing to forgo justice and forgo his own conscience to cling to power. When the Jews start to say, hey, like, if you, if you don't crucify Jesus, you're not a friend of Caesar, he starts to shudder. He starts to pull back. And he makes decisions that are against his, his own values of justice. We see him try to control others by stomping on the Jews in order to maintain power. And ultimately, his power is from man, and his power is something that he clings to. 
And I wonder who gives us the power in our lives. Because from an early age, I found that power was from the people around me. As you guys know, I got picked on a lot in elementary school. And in junior high, I remember like really wanting to be popular. And in high school as well, right? And so there's this top person in the social, social, change, social, social chain. And we kind of ranked ourselves against this person, right? Who was the coolest, who was the best at some type of sport, who was the most beautiful. And against this person, we would want to rise the ranks. I remember in junior high, it was so silly, but one kid who was really popular actually gave us rankings from the army, right? So it'd be like Private Wilson and Sergeant James, and, you know, he would give us ranking. It was a great, like, cult leader. I think he's leading a cult right now. Um, But we have this in the corporate office as well. We have um, our position in our company, and we have people over us who hold better titles, who can promote us. And we have people under us that we get to fire. And, the, and we know who holds power in our lives when we think about who we fear the most. Is there someone in our cir- social circle that can kick us out and we will lose our friends? Is there someone in our family who can tell us that we don't belong anymore and we can't enjoy Thanksgiving with them? Is there someone in our in our business that can fire us? Who is it that holds the power in our lives? And those are the people that we want to appease, that we fear, that we bend our ethic towards. That's, what, that's the system that Pilate was in. He was willing to do anything in order to ra- rise the ranks. And we can feel the same way. We can feel like we're held hostage to the people above us. And I get these kind of like passive answers a lot about putting our employer above everything else, right? I can't go to this because I'm working or I can't say this because it's not politically correct. I can't do this because someone has power over me. But Jesus is put in this like great position of an an appearance of being totally under someone's power. I mean, he was severely flogged. He was at an inch of his life, and yet as Pilate is demanding him to subdue himself, he says, you actually don't have any power over me. Your power is from God. I mean, if I was Jesus, there's a lot of options here. Begging for mercy would seem like one of them. And and when Pilate says, I have the power to execute you, I might feel like he does. Or, or I might start exercising my power if I was Jesus and overthrow him. But Jesus does something incredible. He submits himself to God. And he sees everyone around him as under the power of God. That no one has authority over God. And he's the only one that Jesus is submitting himself to, even though Pilate's the one right in front of him. So when you look at the people right in front of you, are they the people you fear? Or is is there a deep sense that, no, God is the one that controls all things. And he's the one who gives these people power. And ultimately, my allegiance, who I follow, how I make my decisions is under God. There's a, a freedom that comes from that.
there's this sense that we don't have to serve two masters and hate one and love the other, but we can fully give ourselves to one king. I work in an apartment complex. I do three events a month there. And we have a CEO who oversees 40 apartment complexes that hire us on. And um, she and I got to grab lunch one day. And I knew she was a devout Christian, so we talked about that. And she's, she does very unorthodox things when she feels like God's compelling her. She'll just pray for her managers. Or she'll invite them to like a Christian conference and request all of them to go. And I'm like, are you afraid of losing your position? Like, you work for a very secular company. And she said something really profound to me. She said, I'm a CEO not because of the owners. I'm a CEO because God's put me in this position. And if one day he wants me to leave it, I'm willing to do that. So God is the only authority in her life. What authorities in your life have you placed over God? Have you automatically listened to? Has power over you and you just kind of do what they say? Or is God the one who ultimately provides for you? Is God the one who ultimately gives you your friends and your social status? And I think when we want power, we end up wanting control as well. Are there people that you're trying to control or are there people in control of your life? Or have you said, you know, I can go through the hard times because when we're in control of our power and that's what we want, we can get really frustrated with God, right? We can start using him and, and having him be a part of how we control and gain power. And when he's not doing that, we can ditch him. But when we say, God, you're in control, I can go through really hard times and say that there's something at the end of this. There's something that's outside of me, a purpose, a, a, a resolution that he is writing so that even in the hardest moments, even in my desert, in my wilderness, that something good is coming out of it because God is in control. But when I am in control and I hit and I see curveballs and, and things aren't going my way, there's no good ending to that. It's just me and my life unraveling. It's just me gripping on stronger. So when things are outside of your control, when things are unraveling, I think we get to see who's really in power, who we really trust. Am I really trusting myself so I'm clinging on harder? Or do I really believe that God is sovereign? You know, for Jesus, even as he's in chains, even as people are lording over him, are tormenting him. In John chapter 10, just a few verses earlier when he's with disciples, he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my father. He is able to let go of control because he knows that he's glorifying God and that there's a greater ending in mind. If you go back to the last slide, I see a really um, distinct difference between um, how Pilate uses power and how Jesus uses power. And that's probably the, I mean, power is 
defines hero and villains, right? Both hero and villains have power. That's what makes them heroes and villains, or else they would be just regular people. They would just be side characters. But what gives, what makes a hero a hero and a villain a villain is the power that they possess. And all of us have power as well. We have influence over the people around us. We have power in our communities. We have power through our education, through our finances, through our social status. We have power from our beauty. We have power from um, our gifts and our talents. We have power when people put us on a pedestal. And I think most of our context, we don't understand how to use power correctly. We don't feel comfortable admitting that we have power. And therefore, when we don't admit it, we misuse it. We don't steward it it well. So maybe one question I have is, have you recognized the power that you hold in your life? Have you recognized the privilege that you have? Even being a 1% um, space of wealth and education and the place that you live in. Do you recognize the power that you hold when people put you on a platform? We all hold power in our lives. Uh, the position you hold in your company or at, your, or at this church or in your, in your friendship group, you have power. And the question isn't if you have power, is how you use power. Do you use, it, do you use your power to build up your own fame and prestige? Or do you use your power to give God glory? And I think it's such an easy question to say, oh, it's for God. But I think there's really practical implications of that. And even when we're trying to give God the glory, our hearts are mixed, right? There's parts of us that we put up a Bible verse, but we really want more Facebook likes. Or I stand and preach to you guys, but I'm really thinking about how many hits I'll get on podcasts. Like, there's... There's parts of me that wants it to be about God, and then there's other parts of me that wants more power. And we all kind of reside in that mixed bag. But how can we recognize our power, and how can we steer it towards God? In the big things and in the little things. I I went to Cal State Fullerton. You might have seen my Facebook post. And uh, I'm going to play, I was playing pool with Mitchell Tao, right? We're just trying to get a game in. I bought a cue stick. Uh, I'm really good at pool. And uh, we walk in, and they're doing a pool tournament. And they invite me to play. And I'm, like, so excited that I brought my pool stick. And um, so they signed me up. And uh, I, I finished third place. I let the second guy beat me, you know, because I could have beat him. But the first guy, the first place guy was really good, so he would have beat me. Uh, but if I practice enough, I might have a chance against him. But as I'm playing, you know, no one knows me. They all, most of the pool players know each other. It's a pretty tight community, probably 25 guys. And I'm just, like, beating everyone um, really well. And, then, and I'm kind of rusty, by the way, so I'm actually better than, than I played. And um, I just start feeling kind of powerful. You know, I start seeing my, my name rise in the rank of this whiteboard, right? And I think, oh, man, like, I have a chance at, like, beating everyone. And, and there's this, in this really small platform, I get, I get the opportunity to ask, is this influence I have, is this platform I have, is it going to be for me or is it going to be for God? 
And how do I turn this so that, so that God gets the glory, so that someone hears about his name, so that someone is able to um, find Jesus, right? So after I lose the, one, uh, the semifinals, you know, I meet everyone, and then, and then they invite me to play with them um, on Tuesday. So I walk in, and I play with a lot of guys, and I start sharing about Epic and crew, and one of the guys is really interested in joining, right? But I think those moments where we have a platform, like how do we use it? When the eyes are on us, do we feel our chest kind of pop out a little bit? Or do we look for avenues to divert that attention to God? And it's not, it doesn't mean every time we start singing a worship time, a song or hand out a flyer, unless you're me, or, you know, but, but is that in mind? Is that something we have in mind, right? I've been playing volleyball, like Adam plays with me and other people here, and, and like God's given me a lot of favor there, right? I mean, it's just a really fun community to be a part of. I just love it. But for some reason, like when I walk in, there's a sense that people like me, you know? And I know it doesn't happen all the time, but once in a while, right? And so I'm hanging out with them and I'm thinking, oh, how can I like have intimate conversations with people here? When I'm at the apartment complex and the, the, the apartment manager and I, we work really well together and I care about her. And how can I let her know that it's just not me being nice, that there's something about this God. So what is the platforms that God's given you in your workplace with your friends? And, and you know, I play this game called Vainglory and on my, on my clan, right? I'm like the top guy. Like I'm the highest ranked um, and they ranked me pretty good. And my screen name is Renew Church OC, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm like on the chat, right? So, I mean, it doesn't have to be that explicit. I know, I'm a pastor, right? It's just, that's just how I am. But do you, in the places that you get glory, in the places that you have power, within your family, within your friends, within, within uh, your hobbies that you excel at, within, um, you know, Clash of Clans, in your workplaces, um, when people put you on a pedestal, do you use that power to serve others? Do you use that power to give God glory? Do you use that power to bend over and to notice someone who everyone else is neglecting and say, hey, how can I give you a platform? Do you use that power to, um, to pull someone who's outside of the social circle in or to defend someone who everyone else is making fun of? Do you use that power to, um, to stand up for justice? And when everyone's kind of taking that t- turn into immorality, you're saying, hey, like, I actually have these ethics that I want to use my influence to pull everyone towards. How are you using your power, not just with you in mind and how to get to the next notch in mind, but how do you use your power for the voiceless, for the marginalized, because that's what Jesus does, right? Pilate is stomping on those under him to rise the ranks. But Jesus is in this court taking the flogging, taking the shame to sacrifice his power, to give us power. If you, if you take some time to study this entire text, there's these bookends that talk about the Passover and the front and the back. 
And then right in the middle, it speaks about the Passover again. Its, its roots are in Moses when the angel of death passes over these, the homes of the Israelites as they sacrifice a lamb and, and paint their door frame with its blood. But as the ceremony evolves, as Israel becomes a nation, they have two lambs. And they kill one, and then they let the other roam free. They kill one as a sacrifice, and they have the other live in freedom. And in, the, in kind of the, the, the climax, climax of this text, we have Jesus and Barabbas standing next to each other. A man who's killed and murdered. A man who deserves death. And a king who is spotless. And he re- lets his power um, be contained so that another person can be set free. When they shall crucify him, crucify him, they let this murder free and they let Jesus die on the cross for us. And I, I just, I can't imagine how difficult it was for Jesus to endure the pain of being flogged and mocked. And, and it's not just the physical ripping away of skin and muscle. That's not what gets me. What gets me is the power that he had to stop it. What gets me is the determination in his eyes to take the mockery, the blows, the slaps, knowing that he can end everyone's life in one moment, in one word. Knowing that he can command a legion of angels to destroy the whole Roman Empire and it would take a few seconds. That's, that's what makes it hard to endure, right? Other people are victimized. Other people, when they're lashed, they, they want to run and fight back, but their hands are changed. They have no power. But Jesus has all the power of the universe. And he chooses to have his hands together. He chooses to stay in a position bent over so that they can, they can flog him. He chooses not to wave his hand back at the soldiers who slap him because they would die. He chooses to let his power become weakness, become sacrificial in order for us to be in God's family, in order for us to have power over sin and death. That's our king. And I think we could be Christian and serve another king. I think we can be Christian and be in another kingdom where it's about rankings, where it's about our power and prestige, where it's about putting others down so that we can be elevated, where it's about fearing our bosses or other people. But what would a community who serves this king look like? A king who isn't put in bronze with a sword, with the foot over those he conquered, but a king who's on bended knees washing feet. A king who uses his power to serve others. You know, I, I, I remember in 2009, um, 
God called me to plant a church, and I was in Singapore at the time, and there was a lot of arrogance and a lot of naivety, but I said, God, I want to go to China and plant a church there because there's so many people who love you. There's so many people who are willing to die for you and be in prison for you, and yet their theology isn't as developed, um, and they don't have the same opportunities for seminary. And I, I'm about to finish my master's. I can go in and, and just help equip pastors, but I can learn from them, and I can plant a church there. And God said, I want you to plant a church in a place where you can have more influence in China than planting a ch- church in China. I had done um, two or three years on Skid Row at, twice a week with my church. You know, Rachel was there, Ben was there, uh, Christine, and we had served homeless people. And I was like, what if I plant a homeless church in the middle of Skid Row? You know, I knew quite a few of them at the time, and I just imagined this church right on the sidewalk where their tents are, where they, where they loiter, and, you know, I could preach scripture, we could have this amazing community, again, naivety and pride and, you know, youthfulness, but still God was gentle with me, and he said, I want you to plant a church in a place where you can make more of an impact in Skid Row than planting a church in Skid Row. And he brought me, he brought us to Fullerton, to a place where a lot of people are educated, to a place where we're, we have professions, to a place where some of us are, have money or will have money, to a place of influence. And I think we're here, I pray we're here, not just because, not because it's a comfortable place to have church, not because it's an easy place just to do suburbia well, to rise the ranks, to have nice cars, to live in gated communities. That's not a bad thing, but that, that shouldn't be what we aim for, right? We want to be like Jesus, that in this place of power and privilege, we get on bended knees and we, and we, and we wash feet. We, be like, we are like our hero, and we envision the world as he does what would happen if a community of professionals is out to build God's kingdom? What would, what would happen if a community that has wealth wants to give it away? What would happen if we use all of the power, knowing that it's from God and it can't be taken away unless it is God, to serve the people around us? Father, we come to you and we know it's, it's just easy to be Roman. It's just so easy to be a Christian Roman, right? To, to use power, to use, um, to use our education, to use our money for ourselves, to point to us, to get more likes on Facebook, to use our beauty to turn eyes, to use our friends to promote us. But God, I pray that we wouldn't worship um, and be in this world system but that we would think about the king we serve, the king that we want to be like, the king that has brought, him, brought us into his kingdom through blood and sweat and tears, through giving up power to give us the power that we hold now, the gospel, the good news that says everyone can enter in, everyone can be free of sin, everyone can have eternal life. You give us this power. Jesus, we think about the places of power that we hold. We, we say that we have it. And we think about how we used it. And, and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us 
the humble king, to take the influence and power we have in our lives and to serve. To take the influence and power we have in our lives and to glorify you. There's places where we just haven't done that well. There's places where we say we are, but in our hearts we're not. So I ask, Lord God, that in this moment, as we take communion, as we think about a king who's willing to be forsaken, willing to to die for us, that you would help us to examine our lives and ask how we can be like you in our places of power, in our families, with our friends, in our finances. How we can be like you, Jesus, to sacrifice, to build this kingdom that's about service, to build a kingdom that isn't about comparing but about empowering, to build a kingdom about others. Thank you for being that for us. In Jesus' name.